We have another question that was submitted to us by email from Germany, uh, Dr. Stegman. Um, I will read you his, his statement and his question. I came to the notion of information by the fact that entangled particles communicate with each other and therefore must exist a connection, which I call information. One could have called them differently. And in one extra dimension, which is materialist as the dimensions one and two. Since similar quantum effects have been found at the molecular level, possibly organic, and there are models, and he refers to Roger Penrose and Stuart Hammerhoff. Roger Penrose um, wrote Road to Reality. He's a physicist from the UK, and mm-hmm. uh, Stuart Hammerhoff um, is the microtubules uh, proponent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are models, Penrose Hammerhoff, that raise information fields to the level of consciousness. My conclusions went and go in the direction that a consciousness level exchange of information takes place through the five dimensions or the fifth dimension. And our brain is not just information processors, but also receives fifth dimension information, morphic fields, as Rupert Sheldrake uh, proposes. But what if all the information takes place exclusively on the particle level? There are currently quantum processes at all levels, but they do not represent a new quality in the sense of consciousness, but simply describe a physical process. Morphic fields were consciousness-less storages than all other implications that reach to life after death, etc., would not be logically stringent anymore. Okay, I can... There's kind of a bunch of questions wadded up together in that. Um, in general, I think we tend to make processes and come up with theories and explanations that are way too complicated. They have way too much um, um, complication in them. Reality is really a lot simpler than all of that. You don't need a morphic field if you have consciousness-to-consciousness communication. You have the, you know, Rupert in his experiments with the dog knows exactly when his master has decided to return and jumps up and down and wags his tail because the master's on his way home. And he's done those things, but it doesn't require a field. You see, a field is something we come up with to make things sound physical. Oh, yes, something traveled from the man to the dog through the morphic field. And that makes us feel better that we have a physical process going on. We don't need that. We have a dog with a consciousness and a man with a consciousness and all consciousnesses netted all other consciousness. And the way you you uh, talk to a particular consciousness, either transmit or receive, is with your intent. So when the man has an intent, I'm going home. That man and dog, particularly if they're very close to each other, and care about each other, particularly if they know they're having an experiment and the man thinking, okay, I'm going to go home now and I wonder if the dog is going to sense it. Well, that immediately, you know, sets up the intention between man and dog and there's a very high probability that the, you know, that the, the dog is going to sense it. Just conscious to conscious. We don't need the complication of a morphic field. And as far as the quantum ideas go, This reality is not built from the bottom up for the most part. Okay. In other words, it's not the elementary particles go together to form nuclei and, you know, electrons and things and they go together to form atoms and the atoms go together to form molecules and the molecules, you know, go together in a way to form the the physical world and that everything starts at the tiniest level. Everything starts at the elementary particle level and then builds its way back up into the macro. That the origin of things is at the tiny particle level. It is not like that. That's not the way our reality works. This is a more of a top-down probabilistic simulation. It's not a, it's not a, um, a deterministic bottoms up from elementary particles up to molecules simulation. Now, there is a rule set. Remember I said that the way the world works or the way this world was evolved 
was that it started with initial conditions and a rule set. The initial conditions was this ball of plasma, high temperatures, high pressure, so on, that you're familiar with with the big digital bang. And the rule set is what we call science. Okay, All the things that chemistry, biology, and physics have dug out of rules out of the rule set. That's the way this reality works. It's the rule set that defines the virtual reality. Okay, now that rule set has a lot of deterministic rules in it. It's math. Okay, these are the rules by which the computer simulation can evolve. So you have determinism at the very core of the rule set, but you also have some probabilistic things in that rule set too. It's not all deterministic. There are some things that are just naturally um, uh, random events. Things happen naturally that way. It's not all deterministic. So you have some uh, mostly deterministic, but with some random processes added to it. So that's the basic rule set. Now those rule sets create probability distributions about things that are likely to happen. Well, things have been happening here for you know millions of years, and there's a lot of data been collected, so it's not that hard to assess the things that uh, might happen and the kind of probability distributions that will be necessary, the kind of choices that will be made, the kind of things that people will do. And at the macro level, basically this world is the statistical world. It's a probabilistic world. That's why particles aren't particles. They're probability distributions. Okay. That's how we model particles as probability distributions because it is a probabilistic virtual reality. It's driven by probability and statistics. Otherwise, if a computer had to generate this reality starting with elementary particles up and generate everything that was going on in it, that would be ridiculous. It would be a, a crazy thing to even try to do. It's way too hard a problem. And it's so terribly inefficient because you can get the exact same result by having the rule set generate probability distributions that drive a statistical process at the macro level. Okay. That works just as well. And it can drive that that uh, statistical process to whatever level of accuracy it needs to. And when it doesn't need much accuracy, it doesn't compute much accuracy. And when it does need a lot of accuracy, it computes it just as it needs it. But it doesn't compute everything all the time, it only computes what each player, each individual unit of consciousness is perceiving at that time with their five senses. So this reality is really a set of individual data streams sent to individual units of consciousness. The reality exists in the minds of the players. It doesn't exist as and of itself. Okay, That's the nature of a virtual reality. So it's not that the you know, the quantum world is going to derive consciousness for us. I see that as an attempt to, to build a material basis under consciousness for those that really want a world that is materialistic, that's a material-based world. Then consciousness has to be somehow created out of the material. So it's got to be these, these, uh, uh, you know, elementary particles. And because quantum particles and entangled particles have all kinds of mysterious non-local attributes to them, and since consciousness has all sorts of non-local mysterious attributes in it, then the conclusion is made, oh, consciousness must be done by these quantum particles and through entanglement. Right? They both have the same non-local attributes. Well, that is not very good logic. You know, that is, that's like saying, uh, you know, birds fly and rockets fly, therefore birds are just little rockets. You know, they both have something in common, which is the, the attribute of being non-local, having non-local behavior, but that doesn't make them equal to the same thing. Birds are not little rockets. It's an entirely different thing altogether. So just because something shares an attribute doesn't make one the cause of the other. So consciousness has to be non-physical through the virtual reality, by definition of a virtual reality. So I don't think that Stuart uh, Hameroff is ever going to find consciousness in his microtubules. Um, 
I think that, you know, that what he'll find, of course, is that the physical body, the avatar, is a representation of the rule set. And that rule set does have deterministic stuff that has, you know, particles and quantum physics and other things involved in it. Okay. But it's not the, you know, it's, it's not the bottoms up connection between these things. So the, the part, the, the smaller particles just generate the rule set just generates probability distributions that can be used at the higher at the higher level. So I don't think that uh, we're going to find that the, the the body, as I was going to say, is a product of the rule set. Okay, so we can look at the body and we'll find little cells and we'll might even find some entangled things in there, um, passing messages around. But that's because that's the body represents the rule set, and that rule set sets the constraints on what the consciousness can do with that body consciousness can only have that avatar do what the rule set says is possible for it to do so that's the connection between the body and the consciousness so if the you know the brain is a virtual brain you know there is no brain there is no need for the system to ever compute a brain unless somebody saw the hole in the skull and is looking other than that brain needs to never be rendered in a virtual reality it only renders what the five senses can sense that's it. But you have to have some structure there that limits the consciousness, some structure there in the rule set that says what that brain is capable of. Because you see, that's part of, of the, uh, of the physical world setting the constraints by the rule set. So let's say that that brain is not able to learn, you know, what, uh, a foreign language, um, Quantum physics and, you know, advanced calculus all in the same hour. You know, even if it had all that information sitting someplace, you know, that's just, our brain doesn't do that. Our brain doesn't work that way. We work by pattern matching. We work slowly by building up one step to the next step to the next, and we can't do that. So our brain doesn't have that kind of structure in it that would allow consciousness to learn all that stuff in an hour. You see, so that's a constraint on what the consciousness can do based on the rule set that has evolved human beings. So that's sort of the connection. The body just sets the constraints. So somebody hits me, you know, with an iron pipe, and it may change the way my brain works, particularly if they hit me in the head. Well, if that's the case, then the consciousness can only deal with me as a, you know, as a wounded person who maybe can't think anymore, can't remember, maybe uh, talks with a slur because that's what happened after I got hit on the head. And the conscious has to work with that. So you see the difference of how the, the physical and the, and the conscious non-physical work. So the physical represents the rule set. And the rule set, the rule set defines what the, what the conscious can do with that avatar. So that's the, that's the way that, that process works. And out on the macro level, it's all probability and statistics unless somebody digs down and needs a detail, like uh, somebody with an atom smasher over at CERN that wants to know how this pion comes out and what it decays into. Well, now the system has to go a little deeper to compute that. But as soon as that microsecond is over, then it doesn't have to compute that anymore. None of that's computed except as needed. Okay. So I don't know whether that helps uh, this person uh, understand the perspective of MBT and how it fits into these other things. But once you understand this is a virtual reality, then things like morphic fields or any kind of field, electric fields, magnetic fields, all those fields are not necessary. You can let go of all of that because it's just information. You don't need a field to transmit something from one point in the computer to another point in the computer. It's just a, you know, fields are metaphorical, trying to make things seem like they're physical, but they're not necessary. So everything gets simplified once you understand the virtuality concept, and you don't have to have monster calculations from the from the minute up to the macro. You don't have to have, um, you know, uh, entangled particles and quantum effect, quantum things producing consciousness. All that stuff is just excessive complication that 
uh, is unnecessary because all of the same results can be explained logically and scientifically without any of that extra stuff needed. There are no particles. There are no fields. There is only information. Thank you, Tom. If anyone is interested in this question and the logical presentation um, in more detail, I would recommend um, we have done a, a video where the excerpt of Tom's bottom-up, top-down presentation from his presentation at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Uh, that will give you a logical and complete presentation of what Tom has been referring to here. Yeah, also, uh, the uh, also the MBT-LA 2016, where I talked about the experiments. I, I talked a lot about these same subjects in the first couple of hours of that. So those, those would be the two places to go for details. Thank you. Frank, it's good to see you here. Glad you joined us. Um, you've got two questions for Tom, right? Yes, thank you, Donna. Oh, Hi, Tom. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah, my first question um, is about, let me just get my question up here on the screen. Um, my first question is about being authentic and potential collateral damage of uh, being authentic because, um, well, if I got it right, you said you have to be authentic in order to to change who you are because you first have to know uh, how you mm -hmm. w what you actually are and only then can you change. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering about being authentic. Then if, if I'm not very high-quality consciousness, then being authentic might probably mean that I don't behave very nicely um, in, in some circumstances. So, for example, I have an argument with someone, and instead of, you know, being civilized and trying to control myself and do the, we always say, well, then maybe I'm rather acting than, than being, but that usually helps, you know, resolve arguments in a more peaceful and calm manner and is usually more productive. But if, if I have an argument with someone and then I'm being authentic and then my anger comes through and I'm being aggressive and, you know, I do all that, um, yes, then I'm authentic. And then maybe afterward I feel bad about it. I, I notice that, okay, that didn't resolve anything that just made everything worse. And then maybe I can go back and apologize. And, you know, I learn a lot from that. And that's right. probably very good. That's very good for me. But at the same time, because I was authentic and because I was being, you know, maybe uh, more rude than would have been necessary, then I also harmed the other person in the process. So is that, am I, by being authentic, then abusing the other person? I mean, I could also argue I'm giving the other person the learning opportunity. You know, they mm -hmm. can learn from my mistakes. They are being mm -hmm. confronted with a situation that they have to deal with, you know, and then they can see how best to deal with that. But right. still, you know, by my choosing being authentic, I'm imposing that on the other person. So, and is that actually still necessary for for me to be authentic in that kind of argument, for example, or is there another way to to learn without you know causing that sort of pain for everybody? Well, you, you know, you do have to be authentic, and sometimes authentic is going to turn out that you create problems with your authenticity. But it's because of that problem that you create that you actually see the feedback from that problem. Like you say, you get angry and instead of just walking away, you slug somebody because you just got so angry. Well, now you've created a different problem. Now you're arrested for assault and battery and, you know, you've got all kinds of other things that you have to deal with that you otherwise wouldn't have had to deal with. So all of that helps you learn. Whereas if you just say, oh, that's not nice, you know, I'll just smile and walk away, you don't learn anything. You've just taken the problem. You've not expressed it. You are living a, a, uh, an image of a nice, polite person and not learning anything at all because life just goes on and, okay, then you just shift, you know, go on to the next thing in your life. So you do have to be authentic, and it does sometimes affect other people negatively. And like you say, that's an opportunity for them to learn. But the point is you can constrain that a little bit, you know. You don't have to go completely all out, you know, slugging somebody. You know, you can just realize that what I really want to do now is punch that guy. That's really what I feel like doing. 
You know, and then you could say, but if I did that, I'd be arrested for assault and battery, and then I'd lose my job because that was the boss. And then, you know, da 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 da, and you can go through all these things and realize that that would be a really stupid thing to do. Why do I want to do stupid things? Why do I have this, this drive to do things that are so dysfunctional? And then you could maybe solve the problem that way without actually having to slug the guy in order to learn. So it's where is your threshold of being able to learn? So at the, you know, so we have the, the one extreme where you just, you know, suppress it, smile and go on, walk away, don't learn anything because that's just the, the image you going through life doing what you've learned to do. So you don't get ever get rid of your fear. You just hang on to it. And then you've got the other extreme where you go all out and slug the guy and then deal with the consequences, which might be rather severe. You know, it could be a, a really big problem. And then there's a middle ground where you go just as far as you need to go in order to learn the lesson without messing your life and somebody else's life up in the process. So that's just up to the individual. But I don't think you should you should come to the conclusion that you can't be authentic because you might hurt other people. You have to be yourself. You can't grow up. You see, if you don't grow up, you're always going to hurt other people. Well, maybe not by slugging them, but you're going to hurt them in other ways. You're going to be dysfunctional. You're going to make bad choices. You are going to create dysfunction wherever you go because you've got this fear. It's just the way it is. So what you're trying to do is to get rid of that, and then you will be part of the solution. You will help other people get rid of their fears. So I think you just have to say, well, I'll try to get through this and learn, you know, without going to jail, without hurting anybody, you know, but I do have to be myself. I have to admit, I feel like bashing that guy. I really want to. I'm only not doing it because I'm restraining myself. And then rather than just walk off and be happy with the fact that you've, you've restrained yourself because you've learned to be polite, you need to deal with that then. Say, why do I feel that way? Why do I have this need to go out and hit someone? You know, I know that's a stupid thing to do. It isn't going to help anything. Why do I feel that way? And then you'll say, I don't want to feel that anymore. And then you'll renew your your emphasis on, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to have those feelings. And then it can work fine. You don't actually have to hit the guy. So there is a there is a place in there, and it just depends on you and what that is and how much trouble you might get yourself in and so on, where you have to make that choice, whether you just be authentic and let it all go the way it goes, or whether you have to constrain that a little bit in order to not put yourself in a deeper hole than you're already in and put other people, you know, at risk in some way. So it's just part of that process. You know, these processes are never real neat and tidy. <laughs> they all have to be adjusted to the, you know, to the situation and the person all the time. It's all a custom fit to you and, and who you're dealing with and what the situation is. So that would be the thing, but it is better to just be yourself and let the chips fly where they may and grow up than it is for you to continue to be dysfunctional and not grow up. A little bit of pain, a little bit of pain for long-term positiveness. You know, a little bit of negative will help you go to a long-term positiveness and in the long run, that's a better choice. So you, yeah, so that would be the way I would, I would look at that. You don't want to hurt people. But you do need to know who you are, and you do need to deal with consequences. Otherwise, you won't learn. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, because I was always thinking, so uh, growing up, I mean, um, because it's always about others, so I can hardly ever abuse anyone for my personal consciousness growth. But as you say, well, sometimes maybe, and it depends where I, I am able to draw my line uh, personally. Right. And then I was also wondering, do I really have to make every mistake Uh, at least once and then learn from it or but yeah if i'm able to be really in touch with my feelings and uh, maybe then i'm able to just restrain myself before something happens but um yeah but it's it's good to to be able to be aware okay now i would really like to do that but yeah okay yeah i think i got yeah. it yeah that's the thing you know like every other process there's there's efficient and inefficient ways to get to where you're going And just letting all the chips fall wherever they may and just, you know, punching people when you feel like it, that's going to be a very inefficient process because it's going to create a lot of hurdles where there were none before that now you have to get over. So that's not the most efficient process. But 
how efficient a process can you design that actually works? You see, that's mm-hmm. the thing, you know, it has to work. You know, you have to be able, you have to come to the point that says, oh, I felt that. I don't want to feel that anymore. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, okay, I dealt with that now, you know, go on with your life and then not learn anything. So how efficient can you be and still learn? And maybe it'll take you a little longer. Um, <laughs> but maybe it'll be a little quicker. It's hard to say, but that's a choice you have to make. And everything is different. You know, every situation. You have to reassess that choice. So you want to learn what you want to learn, but you don't necessarily want to create more difficulties. Mm. And that actually um, leads to my second question, which is about insight meditation. Now, I'm not sure um, to what extent you're familiar with that, but I understand that you yourself, um, basically your whole process um, uh, was unlocked uh, through transcendental meditation, which I understand is a is a mainly a concentration technique. So you focus so much on your one mantra that you kind of shut out all the other data and you can reach point consciousness with that. And I understand that there's a different type of meditation category, which is not concentration, but rather um, insight meditation or mindfulness meditation. So that's being aware of what's going on in your body and, and mind all the time. So so not trying to, you know, shut shut that out, but really just observe it and being aware of everything that happens while it happens. Um, mm. And I, so I've been doing that for a few years on and off and i found that to be quite helpful uh, i i didn't gain any insight into the larger reality as i say it can also be done with that but i i became at least aware you know what types of thoughts pop into my head and that helped me uh actually see my motivations you know why am i thinking that is uh, so what is there a fear behind mm-hmm. it is there am i planning something or all that so i wonder um if you have anything to say on inside meditation um Uh, is is that something you've, uh, you're familiar with? With how would that fit into MBT okay. as opposed to the concentration technique? Okay, the, they're all just tools. But I would say that the mantra is not really a concentration. If you're concentrating on the mantra, you're probably going about it the wrong way. The mantra isn't something that you focus on intently. The mantra should be just a sound that you think in your mind, lightly, casually, just a sound that you think in your mind. So you just say that sound over and over and you're just feeling it. But it shouldn't be one of, you know, you know, you're not, you're not going to get white knuckles sitting there gripping the chair or focused on that sound. That's not the point. That puts you right up into your intellect, which is counterproductive. What you need to do is just sit and very lightly just say, okay, I'm thinking about that sound. And you just continue to think about that sound repetitiously until some idea comes through. And then when an idea comes through, you very gently say, oh, an idea. Just put that aside. I don't want to think about that now. I just want to go back and hear my sound. But it all has to be done gently and without a lot of effort, without a lot of concentration, really. It's just keeping a sound in there. If you're working at it too hard, If you're trying too hard, then you will ruin the whole process. It won't really work well because when you try hard, you try with your intellect. Put your intellect right up in front, and now that that monster is just not going to work with you because you're using it to focus your intellect. And, Am I doing it right? Just let me do it harder and harder so no, so no more thoughts come in. And that's not it. You need to do it in a relaxed, easy, gentle way, not in anything that I would call concentration. You're just letting your mind, basically you're just letting your mind be idle instead of concentrating. You're letting your mind be idle, but you're feeling, while it's idle, it tends to have thoughts jumping through it. Well, you want to let it be idle, but just let this one sound kind of be in there. And the only reason for doing that is that if you have that sound in there, then it's it's harder for the thoughts to get traction and to get in. But you can't concentrate too much. So in a way, they're both really similar, except that in the in the mindfulness, you're actually paying attention to those thoughts and saying, hey, you know, where did that come from and why is that there? You know, so you're actually looking at your mind and seeing how your mind works and all the little thoughts and where they come from. And uh, that's also a good thing to do. So I'd say they're just two different tools, and they're both good tools. You can learn a lot from from either one. 
So, you know, there's another meditation tool, which is to focus on your breathing. Mm -hmm. And that works similar to the mantra and the mindfulness. It's the same way. You just look at your breathing because breathing is boring and it's repetitious. Mm -hmm. So if you just, again, it's just awareness, though. Like you're aware of the mantra, not really focused on it. It's just you're aware of it, that it exists. And you're aware of your breathing or you're just aware of whatever thoughts come in your head. But you're not letting those thoughts run away with you. You're, you're recognizing a thought and say, okay. You know, and then you kind of pass that one off and say, all right. And then, oh, another thought comes in. All right. You don't focus on those thoughts and you don't start processing on the thoughts. You just accept them and see them. And you might want to think, you might get your intellect in it and say, okay, now where'd that come from? And that's okay. But these are just different sorts of tools, and I'd say all of these tools work, and they all work well, and use whichever ones work the best for you at the time. And one may work best in the, to get you part way, and another may work best to you know go further than that, or vice versa. So experiment. And, and I was just wondering, is mindfulness then also some sort of practice for parallel processing? Because on the one hand, I'm um mindful uh, um or i'm involved in the uh, yeah or i'm i'm observing i'm taking an inner step back and looking at at what's happening so i'm i'm kind of on, on two levels at the same time is, mm -hmm. is that a equal way to put it or yeah that's a fair way to put it you're being mindful of what you're doing and why you're doing it rather than just mm -hmm. doing it like a mm -hmm. like a robot and that will then help you Parallel process because you are mm -hmm. you're you're actually there doing that thing whatever it is but you're also aware of a bigger picture that you're a part of mm -hmm. and you're seeing you're seeing that bigger picture so yes that would have that would help you uh, eventually get to a point where you're parallel processing. Thank you. All right, thank you, Frank. <clears throat> We've had a couple of questions submitted um, to us uh, through Oliver. Uh, Ufi has a has several questions lined up. Uh, Ufi's from Germany. Several questions for the fireside chat. I'm just going to read a couple on this turn time around. Um, Ufi asks, is it possible to access all the information in the database while the avatar is still living and the IUOC is still receiving the data stream? If yes, uh, anyone could now access all the information I've collected in this particular life with my actual IUOC with this particular avatar in the database without my knowledge? Okay, the answer is theoretically, yes. Even being here in, in your in, in your avatar form, your consciousness can go into a database and have all of the data that's in that database available to it. But that's theory. In practice, it hardly works that way. In practice, in order to stay focused and in order to ask questions, you have to know something already to ask questions, right? It's, it's not like, you know, just show me some data about this guy. The system isn't going to do that. It's like going to Google and say, Google, you know, tell me something interesting. You know, it doesn't work. Databases work with very specific queries. So unless you have some specific things in mind, then it's difficult to just go look at somebody's life isn't a very practical thing to do. So that's one thing you'd need specifics in order to do the query. Another thing is that the system, though theoretically all, all the information is available, if the person making the query has, a, has an intent that is high entropy, has an intent of using that information in a way that's going to raise entropy in the system, the system will often not give them the information or give them information that's wrong or information that tells them to take a short walk off a, uh, take a long walk off a short pier. You know, it'll give them information that is problematic for them. So that's the, the system isn't, um, it's not that it's just going to give anybody anything that they want for any reason. There is some, some, uh, what, some rules. Now, the system is not perfect. Sometimes rules get bypassed. But for the most part, you don't have to worry about no privacy in the larger kinds of system. Theoretically, the information is all there and it can be accessed. But practically, that's extremely unlikely that 
anybody's going to pry around in your personal business because of it. All right, thank you. One other question from Ufi is, is the maximum number of units of individual consciousness systems set by the LCS to a fixed amount, which always stays the same, or does the LCS increase or decrease some units of, of individual consciousness systems? If yes, in which circumstances would the LCS increase or decrease, and under what circumstances would they be reduced? Well, you know, I can think of a of two obvious things. If uh, you have a society like ours where the number of people keep going up, so now we have seven and a half billion, and maybe we'll have eight billion, and then maybe nine billion. Who knows what the carrying capacity of our globe is? But as you have more people here, then there's more seats in the in the game. Okay, more avatars, and each avatar would have a uh, individuated unit of consciousness. Unless the system just said, enough's enough. I don't need any more avatars, so I'll just play, you know, the last million here by myself, and then they would all be NPCs. But that's unlikely. That's not really the way the system tends to work. It would tend to just create avatars as it was needed. How do you create an avatar? Take a, take an average, kind of a, a typical avatar, say, and Copy, paste, 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 and now you've got three more typical avatars. This is an information system. Okay, so it's not that hard to make an avatar. I mean, not that hard to make a uh, an IUOC. Excuse me. So uh, that would be why it, they would increase. Why would it decrease? Well, you have a big tidal wave and it kills 100,000 people. Well, now there's 100,000 avatars that aren't going to go to work or wake up the next morning because they all drown. So now you have fewer avatars than you did before. So now the number of avatars goes down. So it goes up and down based on things that happen here. Um, you know, it, it, it revolves around a couple of questions. One's how many, how many are enough? How many avatars does a system need? Because each avatar requires the overhead of a data stream. How much return do you get for each new added avatar? And is that more than the cost of providing them with a data stream? So somewhere you'll have a, a, a point where more, avatar, more avatars aren't really profitable anymore for the system. Well, the system could handle that in many ways. You might just go ahead and play the excess anyway. It may orchestrate a, a you know a natural disaster that eliminates some of the avatars or a disease or something. It could do whatever it needed to do to uh, you know to deal with that. These things happen all the time anyway. They're part of the probability, and uh, it's not so much that it would conjure one up, you know, give us a plague. It would just basically let things happen that were natural. The more population you have, the more you create your own things that limit population. You know, it's like, you know, we do with animals. You know, if you got too many deer, then there's not enough food for deer and deer start dying of starvation because there's too many deer. So when the population goes down, then there's lots of food. So the deer have lots of babies because there's lots of food. So there are natural constraints on population and the system is very likely to just let us find those natural constraints. So we can probably produce as many people as the, as the planet can carry reasonably. And if we do more, then, you know, we will have consequences of having more people than the planet can carry. And that will end up reducing the number of people. If we get too crowded, then diseases can spread very quickly because there's lots of density among people and so on. So I think the system would just let it take care of itself however it was, though it has the potential to intervene. I don't think it would. It's not the way it runs the system. It's not the way it runs the virtual reality. It would just let us go to do whatever we do and suffer the consequences of, of whatever that is. So those would be the conditions of new IUCs coming in and going. Now, if it ever was a place like, say, there's a big catastrophe and there's a whole lot of IUOCs that now don't have an avatar and they're anxious to get back in the game, well, there's other virtual realities. They can always go play someplace else. They don't necessarily have to play there. They can play someplace else.
or they could, you know, it's another part. And I'm just talking about possibilities now in a, in a digital system. There are a lot of possibilities. It could possibly just let them, uh, let them rest, if you will, as potential beings until there's a space for them. And in that case, that potential being just wouldn't experience any time going by. They would just not experience time. They'd still be there, same potential. And then when there's a place for them, ah, it would look like the next second in their life. You know, one from one thing to another. There wouldn't be any break in it or uh, anything at all. So these are just possibilities. Mostly the system likes to leave it, the system alone to take care of itself. It doesn't like to metal with the virtual reality. It metals as little as possible. Right. Thank you, Tom. Um, another question from the previous month from the MBT forum on objective morality. Thomas suggested that there is an objective morality or object, objective right and wrong, which reduces to the statement, if it is if it increases entropy, it's morally wrong, and if it decreases entropy, it is morally right. The justification for this seems to be rooted in a subjective value or subjective preference for the larger consciousness system to continue to exist. As long as it continues to reduce its entropy as it is growing informationally and continues on existing, so reducing entropy is good, and increasing entropy is bad. But is it objectively true that the continued existence of the larger consciousness system is good? Isn't this a mere arbitrary preference for existence over non-existence, which seems to be at the root of all morality in MBT? I have in mind the so-called anti-natalists who seem to subjectively prefer non-existence over existence are they objectively wrong to value non-existence is the larger consciousness system objectively right to value existence well you know i don't think that's a question that has a pat answer you know that's you're you're asking a a fundamental question about is there a right or wrong that is at a more objective and at a larger level than the larger consciousness system something that's you know you have you have uh, your your uh, moral and immoral and right and wrong questions can be over different systems within this subsystem you know here's here are the moral choices that kind of exist there and then in the larger consciousness system you have those that as he said have to do with entropy raise entropy it's not good it's lower entropy it is good and if you have to go to another step beyond that, like, you know, you have the larger conscious system within the context of something else, then you'd have that something else thing to consider and how the larger consciousness system plays within that something else. But we can't go there. We can't get outside to look back at the system as part of a larger system. For us, the larger consciousness system is the biggest system as we can comprehend, as big as we can imagine even theoretically, because we are consciousness. We can't get outside of consciousness. You can't get outside of what you are. Um, we can't do that. So in order to answer that question, you'd have to have a viewpoint from beyond the larger consciousness system. And then you may also then create another issue with that larger system that was beyond the larger consciousness system. And then you'd want to know what, you know, what was outside of them. And then you end up with a, with an infinite regression of ever greater systems. And though that is theoretically, uh, all right to think those sorts of things, it's very impractical to, you can nest a virtual reality inside another virtual reality. That is true. And theoretically, you can just keep on nesting them. Uh, for as many levels as you want, but it becomes a very inefficient computer science process to nest virtual realities. When you have virtual, rea- when you have realities inside of realities, inside of realities, whether they're virtual realities or whether they're, the, you know, the larger consciousness system. If you have consciousness systems inside of consciousness systems, you end up with a very, um, inefficient computer science problem because 
the downstream systems all depend on the upstream systems. And pretty soon, you know, you've just created a huge overhead in in uh, every system as it feeds to the next has its own huge overhead. And it just is not something that is likely to happen. So I don't think there's an infinite regression of of systems nested within systems. So I don't think you can really answer that question objectively until you get outside of consciousness, which is not something we can do since we are consciousness. So I think you just have to start from where you you are very well uh, stated, and that is that the system would like to survive. So its survival is in its mind is what's good, and its death is in its mind what's not good, and we kind of have that basis. Now, it's not entirely arbitrary in the sense that its evolution is about becoming love, about caring, about other. It's not just kind of an arbitrary thing. It's about service. What can you do to help? Not what can I get? So in that sense, as the system evolves, the the basic uh, morality gets to where there's less and less things that are wrong because people are more and more grown up. So if you look at the evolution that way, eventually you'll get to a system where the things that raise entropy only exist out on the fringe. And they are things that will always be with the system, no doubt, but they are not so huge and awful and terrible as the kind of things we deal with today here. There'll be a much nicer, lighter, grander, more benevolent kind of a system in general. Most of the pieces will eventually grow up as well. So it's not that the system will ever be done, but the system can get to fairly well evolve to where the kind of what outrageous uh, uh, negative dysfunctions that we have now don't really exist anymore. There still are going to be some some negative stuff, but it'll be less outrageous and a little more easy to tolerate. So the whole system will grow. So in a way, it kind of solves its own problems because its evolution is toward other and caring and cooperation. And that is what optimizes social systems. Consciousness is a social system. So it's in the process of optimizing itself. And you know that does not sound particularly arbitrary. That sounds like it's a purpose worth having, not just an arbitrary purpose to survive. So, no, I can't answer his question because I think you have to be outside the system to do it, but I don't really believe it's a problem either. All right, thank you. <clears throat> Another question um, from the same author, Studentarius, MBT Forum on reality being continuous or discrete. Is the ultimate and fundamental ground of reality continuous or discrete? In some ways, it sounds as if since everything is a manifestation of AUO, which is absolute unbounded oneness, that at base there is one continuous substance in the MBT books to describe the, the keeping of regular time the process is described by graphs, which show the transition from state 1 to 0 as continuous in nature, which is to say there is no excluded middle, as in digital clocks. But then when one thinks of AUO in relation to not AUO, there is still a discrete nature inherent in the base of existence. And in the necessity of the realization of this state versus that state, that kicks off all of AUO's eventual evolution, it seems that discreteness may be fundamental to metaphysics. It seems also that logic itself, the ability for conscious thought, relies on discrete bits. Is it digits all the way down, or do we end up at a continuous foundation? And what is the significance of this? I think it's probably digits all the way down. I think that the, that's because consciousness itself is an information system. And that means it's based on bits. So as long as it's information, the, the, um, you know, the, the smallest piece of information is just defined as a bit. That's, I think, the definition of a bit, the smallest piece of information. So you have a system that's basically made out of bits. 
and those bits have been configured and you have a system that is conscious. Now, that's a problem in the sense is, well, how did this, this digital system get to be conscious? And that's one that, you know, I would have to do some hand waving. I've done that before. Um, let's see, what was the, there's an argument that has to go with, uh, with a spontaneous, um, spontaneous, what's the word? Uh, not evolution, but, um, anyway, where structures come together spontaneously out of randomness. And that's a, a mathematical thing. And then you have, uh, the thing with, uh, cellular automata. And if you combine those two together, at least in Stanford philosophy school, if you go to Stanford philosophy on the web and look up uh, cellular automata, you'll see a long page after page of, of, uh, conjecture about how, um, between those two, you can end up with consciousness being generated out of, out of randomness, out of nothing. But so you have to start with, with that randomness. You don't really start with nothing. You have to start with potential. So out of a potential, uh, consciousness can evolve. So I don't really have an answer to that. In my MBT, I start with the assumption that consciousness exists. So because if you go back further than that, it's conjecture and it's hand-waving and there really isn't any point in going that far back. Don't really know for sure and don't have a real convincing deductive argument about where that consciousness how that consciousness developed. But if we start with that, it is, and that it's in terms of bits, because consciousness is in terms of information. Uh, consciousness is an information system. Our five senses produce information that we interpret as this reality that we live in. So if you have a, at the root, if you have an information system, then it's based on those smallest units of information, which are bits. So then it's bits all the way down or digits all the way, all the way down. Um, it doesn't really, you know, just kind of doing my own uh, kind of hand waving. It doesn't really seem too uh, likely or too possible to me as a physicist that at the bottom level, you would have something continuous. Continuous things really are problematic. They really don't seem to exist. They seem to, things only be, can be approximately continuous. That was the, uh, the, uh, what was it called? The Zeno paradox? Maybe. Anyway, one of the, uh, paradoxes back in the Greek, uh, uh, heyday around 500 BC, where if you cut the distance between you and your goal by one half, and then you go to that spot and then you cut that in one half and you go to that spot and you cut that one half and you go to that spot, assuming <clears> that, that, that you have a continuous reality, you can never get to the place that you're going because there'll always be another space that you can cut in half. You see, so that reality then has a, has a problem for, for, you know, for real spaces because we know our reality doesn't work like that. You know, we can get from A to B and that's because that it isn't continuous, it's digital. And at the bottom, there's pixels. And you don't go from that last pixel to the next pixel, takes you from, you know, the last step to where you're going because there is no way to divide that gap between pixels in, in half. So you always have to take a step of one pixel and that last pixel takes you to where you're going. So there's there's things about continuous processes that just have logical issues logical problems with them they don't uh, they don't seem to be a very rational way to run a reality is have them based on continuous processes There's just logical problems there so i would tell i would say that no in my opinion this is my opinion again i can't get outside of the system to know more detail that it's digits all the way down and that everything is all of this reality, this digital reality, this VR obviously is computed. So it's as a computed thing, it has to be in digit, in, uh, you know, in bits. Now the system itself, I think also has to be in bits. I don't know that anything continuous can actually exist. I think everything is information and information comes in bits. That's the smallest piece of information. What does continuous information even mean? What's the definition of a continuum 
information. You know, you think of a continuum of information, you just think of a continuum of bits. But bits are always at the bottom of information in my mind. So I think that's the that's the answer. Bits all the way down. Tom was the was the term emergent complexity one of the Yes, that was the thing. It was emergent complexity and uh, cellular automata together. Um, you can do a hand waving argument. You know, it's not a deductive logic, but you can do some hand waving as they as they uh, did at Stanford and come up with something that could have possibly happened, but you still get stuck with a beginning point. You see, you need a potential, this random potential. That's a that's a, a space, if you will, a reality where every every bit is random. But there needs to be bits there that are random. You see, it needs to have potential to be something. If there are no bits, then what is it? Well, it's not information. It doesn't exist. So now I think we're we're trying to make something exist that doesn't because only information exists. So, yes, that argument is that you can see how with, uh, you know, a process working for a long time, you would have a potential actually turn into consciousness. And it's a neat thing that if you look at the Hindu uh, theology, that's indeed where they start. They say at first there was the void, and the void was pregnant with possibility. So see, it's not just a, you know, it was no thing different than nothing. It was no thing. All the bits are random. It was just this void. And the, there was a quickening of the void, and then you ended up with what it, what Hindu uh, mythology or, or theology says, Indra's net. Indra's net was a network of jewels. Well, that's consciousness. Networks, you know, you end up with uh, consciousness and communicating to the consciousness. So that's the network of jewels. So they kind of start at the same place. You have a, a random field, and that field creates consciousness just through um, random chance creating something that builds that ends up in a cellular automata that evolves into something that uh, looks like a general purpose computer because we know all those steps are possible but whether that really happened or not nobody knows that falls under the heading of conjecture so i don't go there with the conjecture in my book i just start with consciousness exists and that pulls a lot of things in that's a big assumption but since we're all conscious <laughs> reading the book, it shouldn't be a big, difficult assumption to uh, to accept. All right. Thank you, Tom. Do we have a couple of minutes for Titi? She has one last question, if we can do this quickly. Sure. We always have room for Titi to ask one more question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how sweet. <laughs> well, <laughs> a few minutes more I have past and and I've been doing some reflections um, I was thinking about the question we had about uh, health um, and the correlation between health and fear work and then <laughs> I came to the terrible confusion that my fear work is not so efficient since my health is not improving that much or is that a bad conclusion because it feels like like it, it is efficient, but I think it's, as you say, good to be skeptical and evaluate the me method. Um, so well, we don't know yeah. for sure about anything. There's always uncertainty no. about what yeah. causes what, mm -hmm. but just a good guess would be that it's probably true that your that your your fear work has not yet shown the uh, the result of better health, but it will. It mm -hmm. will. Keep keep working it because as you get more and more positive and your viewpoint of life gets more and more joyful, mm -hmm. you will find that, you know, you just eat the right foods and everything works and your body cooperates and the health comes right along. It's those it's that negative stuff and the fear and the stress and anxiety. That's what tears our bodies down and gives mm -hmm. us physical problems. So mm -hmm. I think you're working on fears. But you need to make sure you're getting rid of them, not just, you know, digging a deeper hole and putting them in that so they don't show. That you're really getting over them so they're just not there anymore. And as you do, your health should improve. But it's not necessarily going to improve real quickly. The physical system mm -hmm. takes a little time to adjust mm -hmm. to changes. Mm -hmm. So I'd say keep working 
keep working on it, and uh, things should get better. Stay positive. But uh, when you say that, I think you've said that before, to me that, that you really get to get rid of them. And I've heard you saying that you have to get them with the roots. Yeah, pull the fear up by the roots, right? Just yeah. don't pull out a certain behavior. See, a fear yeah. may create a behavior, and you go down and you pull that behavior up and say, okay, I'm going to get rid of that behavior, but that's not mm -hmm. pulling it out by the roots. You got to get what that behavior was attached to, that fear that that behavior is attached to. So it's not about getting or changing behavior. It's mm -hmm. about changing who you are. And yeah. that is, you know, that's really what we're doing when we get rid of fear. We're changing who we are. Yes, yes. Hmm. Well, I'll keep working then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, always. Always keep on working and stay positive. It's just yeah. going to get better and better. That's the way life is. It just gets yeah. better and better. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, everyone, for great questions today. Thanks to Oliver for this for running the server here. And thanks to Justin for all of the editing. I hope we'll see you back next time.